let's get going. I think it's about time that clock's a little slow, so we'll just. Plus, there's plenty of people. We don't want any more. Uh, thank you all. Thank you all for coming out. This is the second lecture in the myths of the modern American mind. Um, the first lecture was on intelligence, or what I call smartness, and that was a subcategory of what we want to talk about tonight, which is scientism, as distinct from science. Now, scientism is an exaggerated belief in and an inappropriate use of the methods of science in places where those methods are not applicable, combined with uh, an exaggerated sense of what science can do even when its methods are appropriate. So this is just a quick idea of what scientism is. Um, to understand this, I want to start with a sort of you know, your, your brief sketch of the origins development and what the hell science is anyway. Uh, generally speaking, I gave you a nice definition there from the English, uh, Oxford English Dictionary. It's a method or procedure that has characterized natural science in the 17th century, consisting in the systematic observation, measurement, and experiment, and the formulation, testing, and modification of these hypotheses. Which is a, you know, pretty straightforward way of saying what science does, different from other things, this is important to note, it's a, it's a very distinct method or way of looking at the world. That's all science is, it's a way of looking at the world and of generating results, a very powerful one. Um, but what it means is that it works a couple of different ways, but in brief, you come up with a hypothesis, I think the world is like this. Now people have been doing this forever, that's not new. And then, you test the hypothesis with direct experimentation. That's relatively new. And then the results of those experiments or, or evaluations or whatever it is that you've done with them must be shared and replicable. That's brand new. That's really one of the breakthroughs that you get with science, and we'll look at some of these key dates. And once they've been replicated, reproduced, then the hypothesis is situated within the existing field of scientific knowledge. So it's this ongoing swing between I have an idea, I test the idea, I get the results back from the idea, and then I incorporate it into existing knowledge. And on it goes, back and forth. Sometimes data, we'll look at examples of this, generates new problems, challenges existing hypotheses, in which case you have to then go back and change those and run more tests. The testing never stops, right? Because there are always new ideas, new things, new information that needs to be tested. Um, very simple. I mean, exactly when the scientific method develops is, of course, a huge realm of argument. A lot of people point to uh, Copernicus's The Revolution of Heavenly Spheres, which is one of the, an early work that could maybe be working in this direction. And then, you know, you get Bacon's Novum Organum, where he really talks about this is the methods of science. His was purely, though, he had a very pure idea of science that nobody can follow, where you only believe the data. Uh, it turns out that's not workable, because you don't ever have all the data, and none of it's all been tested, and so you're always having to build models. But it, it was certainly a huge breakthrough. Boyle's skeptical chemist was a big step forward in systematizing and creating a large theory of tested scientific hypotheses. Um, Newton's Principia Mathematica is the opposite of, of, of Bacon's method, because if people are familiar with Newton, it, he was actually a great experimentalist, but in his, in his Principia, he was almost entirely a speculative philosopher. It was really, he just dreamed stuff up in his mind and then demonstrated it mathematically. 
Um, there was essentially not much testing at all involved in that part of his thinking. And so he sort of is a theoretical, hypothetical end of science. Uh, Boyle and Bacon, maybe the, 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 the concrete in Copernicus, look at the data end. But it's really a fusion of those things, coming up with theories, running a bunch of tests, seeing what the tests come out with, doing a bunch more theories. It sounds simple, but this is brand new in the world, and this is what's important about the scientific method. Up until the development, uh, really in the 17th century, certainly by 1800, this is just going full steam. Um, how did you know something was true? There was a couple of ways. One is everybody else said it was true. Always a good rule of thumb, right? <laughs> the sort of, we've always done it this way, ipso facto, it's a good way to do things. Um, not necessarily not terribly unreliable, because if you were alive, it meant you had been doing something right. Uh, but, of course, you see that the potential errors that creep into your thinking when it's just what you've always done. Uh, second thing, way you knew anything, was you appealed to an authority. For much of Europe, that would have been Aristotle for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. <coughs> Whatever Aristotle said, that was true. Why? Because he's Aristotle, right? That's all you needed to know. And so you could talk about, debate about what Aristotle meant, but really the, the fact that Aristotle might be wrong uh, was sort of unheard of. By the way, this is what uh, Galileo got in trouble for. He was not an Aristotelian. He was an anti-Aristotelian. He didn't get in trouble for looking at the heavens. He didn't get in trouble for saying the earth was moving. This is not it. It was his central assault on the theories of Aristotelianism that got him in trouble. All the other stuff was just tangential to that. Um, and so it was his disbelief in the dominant uh, philosophical hierarchy of his time for explaining things. This is, this is how Galileo gets in trouble with the church. Um, and so, you know, another important turning point, but it is, is you, if you wanted something to be true, you just referred to a reference in Aristotle. If you were in the Arabic world, there were a number of Arabic scholars to choose from who had similar standing to um, Aristotle in, in the Western world. If you were in China, you could go to Confucius, right? If you want to know why it's this way, well, Confucius said, therefore, well, that answers your question. Question solved. <laughs> Um, of course, also religious texts often filled this void as well. Well, it's in the Bible. It's what the Bible says. Now, or in the Quran, you know, and so, or, or it's in, the, in your sacred Buddhist texts. And so scholars spend all their time arguing about the interpretation of things within their texts. It didn't really occur to them to run actual experiments on any of this. This is important to know. And there's a couple of reasons for this. One um, is the social hierarchy of the ancient world, and this is all over the ancient world, this isn't just the West or the East or the Arabic world, this is all over. People who worked with their hands were servants or lower caste. People who had education could read and write, which is extraordinarily rare in, in the ancient medieval and even late medieval world, did not work with their hands. That was, your, that was almost by definition. If you got your, your hands muddy messing around with things, then you were relatively lower status or a slave. This is why many of the artisans in the, in the Greek world had no standing. We don't know who most of them are because, well, they worked with their hands. And so they're artisans, which is to say dirt. Um, you know, that's, you just, you wanted nothing to do with them. To have science, to have experimental science, you have to have this meeting of a willingness to think 
philosophically, to have reason and logic and have the education necessary to record your results, again, very rare, and a willingness to then get in and get mucky with things. Uh, you know, famously, medical science was held up for years because of superstitions and, and cultural resistance to having people dissect corpses. Well, the next step was to get educated people willing to dissect corpses. Now, this took place occasionally, but generally, if you were educated, it was precisely so you didn't have to do icky things like <laughs> dissect corpses <laughs> or butcher mules or tan hides or anything to do with dead things. Or if you're talking about mining and geology, it was not you know, going into the ground and inspecting mines. You had servants who went into the ground and inspected mines. Famously, by the way, Goethe was a mine inspector. He actually did this stuff. He liked it. He was fascinated by it. But everybody, but that, but the, the nobles, the true nobles at the court where he worked in Weimar would not do it. You hired a lower person, which is hilarious thinking of Goethe down in mines, but he did, he did this. He was fascinated by pretty much everything. He was, a, he was the new man that we're coming to. But this starts to break down. Um, uh, the, 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 the appeal to just authority, people start saying, well, maybe it doesn't have to be this way. One of the things that leads to this, by the way, is, is of course the Reformation, the splitting of, of the Catholic and the Protestant church, which throws all authority into question. If you, you can't have a divine right of king if you don't know which divine it is. Right? You know, you can't appeal to the Pope because maybe you don't agree to the Pope. And so in this ferment and stir that is thrown up in part by the Renaissance, in part by the Reformation, you get this new sort of rising class of people, often from the business world, not necessarily from the nobility, because you have an increasing middle class. And again, by the 18th century, you really have progress underway with science. And now it's important to make a distinction here, because this is going to become important as well. You can have technology without science. The steam engine was developed without science. You had trains before you had any understanding of thermodynamics. We didn't have a theory. Or we had no workable theory. We had all kinds of crazy theories. We had no actual good working understanding of the relations of pressures and heat and temperature and steam and gases and all. It just didn't exist when the steam engine was developed. Trial and error, application of new technology. You can do an amazing amount with technology by experimentation in the sense of trial and error, without any overarching theories, without any systematic structure in which that is put. This is really the magic of science. It takes all the experimentation that people have always done, systematizes it, records it, very important, makes it reproducible. You can't have a one, you can't have a scientific experiment that runs once. It has to be reproducible in theory, of course, has to be reproducible. And then somebody else can reproduce it. And then incorporates it into a larger philosophical system. Um, one reason uh, Scotland is so important here is because the Scottish universities, as opposed to Cambridge and Oxford in England, had funding from industrialists um, and did not have the weight of the church holding them down. So they were able to do a lot more mucky things with their hands. You didn't just go to university and, and, and learn about, uh, you know, the classics, always good, or the church, always dubious. You know, you, you sort of, you had opportunities to do some, like, lab experimentation for the first time. And so this gets rolling in the 18th century, or 1800s, I mean, really going. 
And the transformation that takes place over the next hundred years, of course, is, you know, is famous. I mean, you, all kinds of technologies, you know, the steam power is perfected and, um, and transportation is accelerated. This is a revolution. Up, up until you get the, the train, you, the world moved at the pace of human walking, except for on ships, you know, which different sailing ships were slightly different. But on land, which is where almost everybody was all the time, the speed of everything was as fast as a human being could walk. Horses over long distance travel about the rate that human beings walk. So they don't, they don't really help you, particularly when you don't have good roads. When you get a steam engine, the, the acceleration there you know, was 50, 60 miles an hour. So all of a sudden you can move 20 times faster than anybody has ever been able to move before. This is an extraordinary acceleration. So if you think about a, a, a jet, a transport jet, you know, that you fly on around the United States today, that probably travels about four or five times faster than a good steam engine did in 1900. So that's faster, but it's not 20 times faster. I mean, that, the acceleration from 3 miles to 50, 60, 70 miles an hour is, you know, it's extraordinary. It's, it's, it's an immense leap for people, and, and the experience just sort of blew their minds. So now you're traveling at 80 miles an hour, and all of a sudden you get the telegraph, an application of understanding of electromagnetism, uh, batteries, all kinds of the technology to make wires, material science, insulators. You get a telegraph. How fast do telegrams travel? Speed of light, give or take. Um, now, that is really mind-blowing. Now, information, for the first time, is traveling from across Europe, across the world, not quite instantaneously, because they have to stop and recode it, and there's in, but really, really damn fast. What used to take six months might take a day or two, maybe. The, the, the trip from um, before the rail line went across the United States, you used to have to sail from San Francisco all the way around South America, all the way to very long time consuming, could take you months or, if weather was bad, assuming you didn't die, a year. Well, then they got the Transcontinental Railway. Now it takes you five, six, seven days. And then you lay the telegraph. You can tell your friends you arrived in San Francisco, and they'll get the message an hour or two after you get there. And that transformation took place in like 50, 60 years, in a lifetime. You would live to see, oh, well, if you want something, you want to get to San Francisco, it's going to be a long walk from New York, <laughs> to, oh, I picked up a telegram, you got to New York an hour and a half ago, two hours ago. I mean, this, this is extraordinary. Just transformation of the world in any number of ways. Medical science, all the, all the technological and scientific progress we're used to. Um, just, you know, discovery after discovery after discovery. At the same time, because of things like the, 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 the end result of the, Catholic, of, the, of the Reformation, of the development of science itself, of all kinds of state warfare, the old modes of authority are not even just be questioned, but they've fallen on hard times. The church starts to look a little less good than it did after a couple hundred years of religious warfare in the West. Um, nation state governments, the divine right of king thing has sort of fallen away, replaced by a lot of democracies and democratic parliaments, 
which are messy and ugly. We know this, right? If nothing else, you don't think whatever our Congress votes must be the world absolute truth, right? (laughs) Everybody's aware that sometimes they occasionally vote for things that might not actually be completely true. Um, And so if your government is losing authority, your sense of, of, of God and the church is maybe losing authority, what grows up to fill that vacuum? One thing was, in fact, science, because year after year, decade after decade, it was delivering you know, uh, antibiotics, uh, sanitation, um, telegraphs, like I said, steam engines, steamships, airplanes, dream of man, time immemorial, good Lord, we're flying. It's like a miracle. But it was generating a miracle every five years, not one, but just one after another, after another, after another. It was, blew people's minds. And so what happens is science gained this reputation for A, infallibility, and B, as not a source of knowledge, which it certainly is, but the source of knowledge, which it certainly is not. That's scientism. It's when everybody decided they had to look like science if they were to have any relevance or meaning. If you don't look like you're doing the scientific method, if you don't look like you're adhering to the scientific uh, rules of reasoning, then A, you're not thinking, and B, your results are totally suspect and unusable. Unfortunately, this is of course a myth, it's not only not true, it's hugely misleading and actually quite damaging. I'll give you an example, many examples, why? But I do want to start off with science. Wonderful and amazing, this is not a criticism of science, so criticism is a misunderstanding and a misapplication of what science does and can do, um, and then what it can't and, and has no business trying to do. So if you think about you want to build a bridge, say we want to replace the Hood Canal Bridge, as we did recently. Now, we have over 200 years of metallurgical science, engineering science, material science, construction logistics, I mean, wow, we have computer CAD systems, we can build a bridge. We can build, a, I mean, just fabulous, wonderful, incredible bridges. No problem. Great problem for science. You want a bridge, we'll build you one, it'll be good, we guarantee it. Where should you build the bridge? This is not a scientific problem. Because I certainly don't want the bridge in my backyard. (laughs) I want the bridge built in your backyard. (laughs) As it turns out, you build the bridge through the backyards of poor people, right? This is where you build your bridges. But there's no right answer to where to build a bridge. The narrowest place? Well, what if the narrowest place happens to be particularly like a a nature preserve? Well, let's move it to a little bit wider place. Well, what if the wider place happens to be the homes of many very wealthy people? What about a really wide place? Well, now that's too expensive. Oh, expensive? Who should pay for the bridge? Should it be the people who drive on it? This is your classic toll bridge. If you use it, you pay for it. If you don't, you don't have to. Well, that's wonderful and seems sensible. But of course, almost nothing would ever get built in this model, certainly in a country as expansive as ours. The the Tacoma Narrows Bridge was built under this model, which is great. But what if we want to put a bridge in Seattle? Should only people in Seattle pay for it? Maybe the state has an interest in there being a bridge, in which case all the citizens should pay for it. 
Maybe the federal government has an interest in there being a bridge. In which case, all the taxpayers in America should help pay for this bridge that's in the middle of Seattle. There's no right answer. You, you can't say, well, this and not that. You know, there's, it's not subject to scientific analysis. There's too many variables. It's, it's a moral, ethical, political question. Really, it's a political question, which we'll talk about, which really aren't subject to scientific analysis. Um, and so, how about do we want a bike lane? Bike lanes are nice. Bike lanes are expensive. Bike lanes take up room you could have for cars. How about a pedestrian and a bike lane? How about a light rail lane? How about we don't let cars on at all? We don't decide we don't like cars. <laughs> Maybe we should have a high occupants vehicle lane. Can you think of it? See, these are all choices that we have to make, none of which science helps us with whatsoever. And it turns out that in our lives, almost all the questions we face are questions like, what kind of bridge should we build? Where and how much should we spend on it? Versus... Hey, we can design a perfect sort of very good bridge. Also, the question of what a bridge should look like comes up. Right? We could build a bridge that looks like practically anything. We could make it look like a big dragon, which I think would be cool. But we don't, but just because we don't want to. We could. But again, not a science aesthetic question. There is no right way to build a bridge. There's no right way to build a bridge put a bridge. There's no right way to fund a bridge. There's only various social compromises that are brought up by the various interests of a society. We can only afford a bridge this big. We don't want people to ride their bikes on. We don't like bicyclists, right? Whatever it is you decide, it's, it's not correct in any scientific sense. It's not a measurable correctness. It's not repeatable. We'll photocopy the Hood Canal and we'll build 11 different bridges and we'll study those bridges for 12 years, and then we'll decide which one we should have originally. <laughs> that would be a scientific experiment. Unfortunately, you cannot photocopy the world and try all sorts of different things and see which one turns out the best. Instead, you make compromises and sneak bills through in the end of the night and raise taxes without people knowing it and charge exorbitant tolls and all of the stuff that we always do. Because there's nothing else, there's no other way to do it. And this is our life. This is the world we live in. Another way to think about it is think about something like a banana. Um, people tend to like bananas. I like bananas. Now, if you ask a biochemist what a banana is, you will get an entirely different answer than if you ask, say, a molecular physicist or uh, if you ask, say, a structural engineer. They will give you totally different versions, like, oh, what's the, I don't know, I don't know how much weight could you support with a banana? Maybe three bananas stacked in a particular way. How much, you know, where does that structure, when will it fail? Fascinating question. Structural engineer can tell you. They can do all kinds of research on a banana. Basically, we don't care about any of that. We really don't care. We don't even care about nutrition, it turns out. Look what we're eating, right, as a, as a nation. We have no interest in nutrition, right? We like bananas because we like them. We want to know, is it right? How do I tell? That's what we care about. But then notice the ripeness that people like varies dramatically. Some people like 
disgustingly overripe bananas. That's wrong by science. We know that's wrong. You know, so the, and we're much more about where to put a bridge and, and what kind of banana do I want to eat. But the banana example also, I think, don't forget, science is not a thing. It's a method that's applied all over in different fields. But biochemists do not know what the hell physicists are doing. Physicists do not know what electrical engineers are doing. Electrical engineers have no idea what uh, geneticists are doing. In fact, people in the subfields of their own fields have no idea what each other are doing. It's, it's, like, it's not like there's this board of science where they all sit around and chat about all of science. In fact, the president, this is true, has a science council that advises him on science, which I always love this idea because it suggests that like Obama has all this time to run experiments at the White House, right? He's, he's in there going, oh, let's see if we can find the Higgs boson first or something. Uh, no, and if you look at what they say, they say they're helping the president understand science, which is okay, maybe, I don't know why, but sure. But if you look at what they actually talk about, it's all political, of course. Do you think the President of the United States makes a lot of decisions based on firm science? No, it's like, who's going to vote for it? Can I get it funded? Can I get it through the House and the Senate? No. Uh, you know, it's all of these other calculations that have nothing to do with science. Science be damned. Politics, science, no relationship whatsoever. You may have noticed this. Um, but it turns out that, our, again, our world is a lot more like where do bridges go, bananas, and politics than it is like, oh, what is the atomic weight of this object, right? I mean, it's just, that's not where we live. Does it make science bad? It makes it generally totally unhelpful. Let's keep this in mind. Um, so we're in this weird world where we believe absolutely in science, and we'll give you some examples of this. We do believe in it, and we want it to be applied everywhere, even though it's applicable almost nowhere. I mean, science is great within the realms of science that are useful for it, but everybody else tries to use it, all of which confuses us endlessly. A couple of examples here. Um, one, I, I just looked this up before. So if you go, so to do science, you need to quantify things. You've got to give them numbers, because that makes it easy to communicate and easy to analyze. So what this in scientism has done is made us want to put a number on everything even things that it makes no sense whatsoever to put numbers on. So I looked up before I came to class, or to this lecture. Um, the Brothers Karamazov on Amazon.com is rated a 4.4. <laughs> Dan Brown's Angels and Demons is rated a 4. This means that the Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky is 10% better than Angels and Demons by Dan Brown. And I know because those are the numbers that they have. Right? Clearly, it's 10% better. Right? I mean, what the hell does it mean for Dostoevsky's novel to be a 4.4? I don't know. I, out of five, I just... Well, I, but there it is. And, and we rate, every, I mean, we can't help ourselves, right? By the way, if you go back, this is new. If you go back at night, I would essentially argue anything written before 1900 never does this. They just don't. It's not, this is a really new way of thinking about the world. 
that this notion that everything is scaled numerically. Now, in my experience, the Brothers Karamazov is rated either 100 or zero. You either love that book and it transforms your life, or you think, dear Lord, stop writing. <laughs> this is the response that I've ever seen to this book, which for me, I love. But every criticism that people have about that novel is too long. The plot makes no sense. The trial scene is interminable. Everybody rambles on pointlessly forever. It's all true. He was getting paid by the word, you know, and he was writing at an incredible pace. And so he's just cranking out crap, but it's just this beautiful, wonderful, flawed, horrible mess of a novel. And either the horrible mess overwhelms you and you just pitch it and go, zero, I don't like it. Or you read it and you go, oh, this is the greatest thing ever written. And you think, a hundred, I love it, I want to sleep with it every night. Right? It's, it's, but, it, but it turns out it's actually a 4.4, and like I said, hilariously, <laughs> 10% better than Angels and Demons. And you can find, you know this, right? We've seen this, you can find this for every rock album in history. This is the eighth best hard rock album ever made. This is the 11th best progressive rock guitar lick in history. It's like, what? She's the number four most beautiful model in the world. What? Notice that this, this desire to quantify, to quantize, we must put a number on it. Because if it doesn't have a number, it's meaningless. Um, another example that I actually put here, because I think it's so beautifully hilarious, is from The Wine Spectator, October uh, 13th, 2014. This is a, uh, I am not even going to try to say all that Italian, Rocca di Montemassi. It's an 88 points, and it's $25. Let's cut to the chase. <laughs> it's two numbers, ladies and gentlemen. It's an 88, and it's a 25. 25 bucks, we know what that means. 88, that's close to 100, must be good. <laughs> now, but really think how preposterous this is. If you don't like this wine, once again, it's not an 88. It's roughly wine you don't like. <laughs> then what you do is you drink a lot of other wine, and then you come back and drink it, because that, well, you can't tell anyway, right? We know this. I don't like that, I'll drink this other. Okay, now I'll drink the wine that's left. Right? That's, that's, that's how you make bad wine good. You drink the other one. You drink this one, right? That's, that's what wine drinking is about. Now, we love to mock the wine connoisseur, but the wine connoisseur is mockable because of the scientism. But the wine connoisseur, if you think about it, really, you drink a lot of wines and you find the style of wine you prefer, and you try to communicate it to people. And the, what you can do is share some wine and hand it to the person and say, this is the kind of wine I like. We've talked about the kind of wine I like. I think it correlates with the kind of wine you might like. Only if you try it, only if you have the experience, can you confirm and validate that. If I validate that a lot with somebody, then when they say it's an 88, which is still absurd, I can go, oh, really what they're saying is this is a wine they enjoy. I've tried other wines they've enjoyed, and it turns out that our palates line up. Therefore, I think there's a probability, not a certainty, of course, but a probability that I'll enjoy this wine. But I can only know by drinking it. And it's not repeatable. 
the same wine from that vintner next year might be no good. Might be better in a couple of years, might go off on the shelf in a couple of years. My tastes might shift as I age, which is generally what happens. You can only know whether or not a wine is good by drinking it. And we hate that. <laughs> we absolutely hate that idea. We want to know that it's an 88. I spent $25 on it, and it's an 88. Therefore, it must be a good wine. Even if I don't like it, it's a good wine. <laughs> because the scientific -y people have told me it's an 88. With numbers and everything. Right? Have you ever had a cheap wine that you sort of like, oh, that's kind of cheap, but boy, I like it. <laughs> little, little squeamish about that, right? Because not dollars is also a price. And that's a real number, and so numbers are real. And so this is, this is, this is just bizarre. Again, if you go back and look at wine writing, art writing, uh, literary writing, music writing, criticism, reviews, Prior to 1900, 1910, even 1920, they almost never rank things. This Debussy sonata is a 7.3. <laughs> I mean, they'll talk about all kinds of aspects of it. They'll talk about whether or not they like it. Um, Bernard Shaw is a brilliant music critic. Go back and look what he said. I can never remember him putting a number to anything. But we want everything to have the number, even when we can laugh and say that's silly, we still want the number. Right? This is because we need that reassurance, that sense of scientism, that there's really something there behind it. Another aspect of scientism is the belief that a revolution is just about upon us. We're always about to be revolutionized by some new technological breakthrough. Everybody's familiar with this one? Um, the two fields that I thought about immediately when thinking about this was, one is cancer research, because if you look at, or read medical news at all, about once a month there is a miraculous revolution in cancer treatment. It makes me think that somewhere in the world is a factory producing new cancers, because <laughs> to have generated so many revolutionary treatments and to still have cancer makes no sense. So I put a chart here of the mortality rate of, of breast cancer patients from 1975 to about 2010. And starting in about 1990, the mortality rate begins to decline. Um, and it's fallen by about 15% in the intervening 15 years. Now, that's a percent a year. That is spectacular. This is thousands, if not millions of lives saved and extended. But it's a percent a year, it's not a revolution. It's science. The slow accretion, we ran some experiments, we found out that it's 4% more effective if we reduce the first dose and raise the second dose. We did some more experimentation and said, you know what, it's better to break that into three small doses and give that over time and we get a 5% better result. It's 100 small, incremental, continuous evaluations of lots of complex factors to arrive at slightly better outcomes that cumulatively generate cures and life extensions for thousands, if not millions, of people. That's wonderful and powerful 
We're not revolutionary. It, it, it's a slow, this is what science does. It's generally very slow, very careful, very incremental. And what we think of as scientific revolutions, if you go back and look at them historically, are sort of generally decades or centuries long processes that have finally come to fruition because people have been working on them hard for decades or centuries. And generally, many hundreds, if not thousands of people, rarely the work of isolated geniuses. Happens occasionally, very fascinating, but often just a lot of people slogging away on complex and difficult problems. <coughs> a second example is if you turn over the, the flyers, is cost per kilowatt hour of solar panels. Now this chart is slightly misleading because um, this is from the Department of Energy and they squeeze the top of the graph a little bit. So it's not quite as smooth as it appears. Um, it actually took a sharper dip there for the first couple of years and then leveled out. So this has been slightly smoothed by the DOE people, but the general gist there is the same. Uh, in, you know, 1980s, a cost of per kilowatt panel was about $15. Kilowatt hour of solar panels was about $15. Um, and it's dropped down now to where it's about two. So again, a steady decline. Improvements in manufacturing technology, material refinements, uh, installation techniques, um, wiring, batteries, transfer, everything. Right, this, Hundreds of things have been improved a little bit every year for 30 years. This is not a revolution. This is a slow, incremental improvement, which is basically how science has done everything, because that's the process. You run an experiment, now it has to be verified. This takes a long time. Somebody else has to run the experiment. Almost invariably, they come up with a different result. So then everybody scratches their head and says, well, let's run it a couple more times. And you run the experiment a bunch of times, and you finally go, okay, it looks like we're all getting the same thing. Great. Now we can keep moving ahead. So the notion of the scientific revolution, which we love, is also part of scientism. It's mythological. <coughs> um, and here's a quote from Peter Thiel, who's a guy who's a billionaire. That means you're smart, by the way. Um, and, and, and he's a founder of PayPal, so he made a lot of money with PayPal. Which means he's a tech guy, which means, of course, he's also smart. So he's double smart, smart squared. And this is from an article in Computer World, and he was talking about the fact that we live in an anti-science age, which is hilarious. Uh, he should have met the Inquisition. Galileo has something to say to him about anti-science age. Uh, but while advances today may be enough to dramatically improve business efficiencies and create great new companies, it's not clear it's always enough to take our civilization to the next level. Notice that civilizations come in levels. Right now, we're at about a 64, and he wants us to reach at least a 73. You see, this is the scientific mindset. His argument parallels one raised by the economist Robert Gordon, um, who argued that there's an absence of the type of innovation that advances civilization in fundamental ways. Right? Ah, well, true innovation is something like air conditioning, <laughs> the combustion engine, or the telephone. Um, so I was trying to think of the fundamental advances in civilization. There's agriculture, big step forward, about 10,000 years ago. Something of a lull, 
for about, I don't know, a couple of thousand years. Probably writing and reading and literacy is your next big one. Then you get a lull for a couple of thousand years, and then maybe the scientific revolution? This is still arguable. Certainly the industrial revolution, which is not exactly the same. Industrial revolution. Those are probably the three big shifts in the history of civilization. Agriculture, followed by writing, followed by the Industrial Revolution. So shockingly, in the last 60 or 70 years of science, we haven't fundamentally changed civilization again. I don't know why that is. Uh, what a bizarre measuring stick, right? That science should fundamentally alter civilization every couple of decades. Um, notice what this would mean. It would mean we would have to fundamentally alter the way we live every, say, 20 years. One reason science isn't doing that is because people don't want to do that. <laughs> We're still not fully converted to the Industrial Revolution. All of this hearkening we have back to agrarian utopias and back to the earth movements and all that, this is a hearkening back to the agricultural world in which most of humanity lived for the preceding 9,000, 10,000 years. Now, most of us left that over 100, 150 years ago in the developed world, and we still hearken back to it. We still have this sort of longing, culturally, if not individually. Everybody's moving to the city, but everybody wants to be out on a farm. It's a weird dichotomy. But it's easy to explain because a fundamental shift in your civilization is difficult. It's challenging. It upsets all the patterns that you've lived by, all your sense of the world, where, where, where you're going to earn your money, who's going to be your neighbors, what your future is going to look like, has to change when civilization fundamentally alters. I think if scientists were fundamentally altering our civilization at a clip like this, we would kill them all. <laughs> we would be like, that is enough from you guys. We're killing you, because don't do that. We just got used to this. I mean, it takes hundreds of years to make the kind of transition that apparently he wants us to make every 20 or 30 years for science to be meaningful. If you've read the Epic of Gilgamesh, the first written novel we had, um, it is a paean to the lost pre-agrarian civilization. This is what Gilgamesh is longing for. His, his friend Enkindu is longing to return to the civilization, to, to the pre-agrarian civilization. It, it's, and that's, you know, that comes much after agriculture is very well established, big civilization, you've got writing, you have cuneiform tablets. And what are they sitting around thinking of? They're going, oh, wasn't it great? Back when we just lived with the deer and the animals weren't afraid of us and things were cool. You know, it's the same thing today. It's 200, 300 years since we left the agricultural revolution world that we lived in for so long and entered the new industrial world, which we haven't lived in that long. And so we, we have the same longing that the authors of Gilgamesh had for the pre-agrarian world for the agrarian world. So, we, I mean, A, science can't possibly deliver this. B, we would hate them if they did. It's, it's, it's a meaningless idea. But we have this notion. Science should generate an endless series of revolutionary moments that changes everything 
Except that would drive us absolutely crazy if it did. We would not want it. We would not like it. And of course, it's ridiculous. And the three examples he gives, none of these are important, by the way. True innovation like air conditioning. Now, air conditioning allows people to live in Florida, yeah, where they shouldn't, I think is right, yeah, where they shouldn't. Uh, in large numbers, when they would not before. Uh, you don't want to live in Florida until there's air conditioning, right? You don't want to live in Arizona until there's air conditioning. People did live there. It just makes it very much more pleasant. Um, but it's not world-changing. And plus, by the way, most of the world still doesn't have air conditioning. Um, the combustion engine, this is the steam engine thing. The steam engine was a revolution. The combustion engine is just more steam engine. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't change anything dramatically. It means that you can drive all over the place. It changes the patterns. Well, I mean, combustion engine is influential, but it, we were already moving fast. It just meant you could move fast to more places, sort of. Also meant you had to get horses off the road, right? Um, and then the telephone. The telephone is cool and amazing as the all transfer. But when you have the telegraph, you can send messages more or less instantaneously, more or less anywhere in the world. The telephone makes it more efficient and easier. It doesn't change. It's not, a, it's not a fundamental change. So he calls for a fundamental revolution and lists three things that are not fundamental revolutions, um, which lets you know that even people who theory know about technology and science, which he obviously does not, uh, are subject to this scientism, this, this sense that the world um, must, must be changed by science continuously, this revolutionary impulse. So we love numbers, even when they're inappropriate, which is almost all the time. Um, we love this notion of revolution. Everything is about to change. And we live in an age of remarkably rapid change, which tends to drive us crazier than it makes us enjoy it. And yet, we, we have this belief that, oh, science is about to deliver even more, which it doesn't. Um, and then finally, is the belief that science displaces all kinds of other things. For instance, now you may be familiar, we have this little problem with Ebola. Um, and there's a great interview from the person at the Gates Foundation. They're giving a lot of money to this. They do a lot of public health work all over the world. So they've been focused on Ebola. And they were, she was being interviewed, and the interviewer said, you know, are you guys working on a vaccine? They're like, well, we have trials underway. And are you working on a treatment? Well, we have treatments. And finally, she, she stopped. She said, look, 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 you're, you're not asking the right questions. We know how to stop Ebola. We've done it before successfully. We will do it again successfully. Public health workers will educate the community and isolate people who have Ebola. That is the only way to stop an outbreak. And the interviewer was like, so how long till we have a vaccine? Say, <laughs> so even when science tells them, look, here's how you do it. We don't like it because it doesn't fill our idea of scientism. Scientism says there's going to be a pill, a magic switch, a ray gun that is going to take care of all of this. Even when science says, no, there is no magic switch, there is no ray gun, there is no pill. Our desire for it overwhelms the science, so that the scientists, and you see this all time, all kinds of ways in all kinds of fields, end up saying, sort of, look, no, 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 you're, you're expecting too much from science. You're, 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 you've exaggerated it. And almost all, certainly vast quantities of science reporting are, in fact, scientism, 
They exaggerate, they inflate, they misrepresent, and then if you go back to the original papers or the arguments of the scientists themselves, they're almost always very small and carefully worded because that's what science is about. Um, two more examples of how science works and how we love it. Um, I, I mentioned that this uh, science works in both ways. One way is we have all the knowledge that we have and then it leads people to go, oh, I think something might be true, let's test it. Um, and so in, famously in 64 to roughly 1970, several physicists, most famously uh, Mr. Higgs, suggested that we're missing this particle from our model. And that particle is the Higgs boson. Well, it's named after him now. It wasn't named after him then. It was a type of boson, and so they named it after Higgs. And so he predicted this. Um, it was a boson-like particle was observed um, in, oh, I should say 2013. Sorry, <laughs> I got that wrong. It should be 2013. So this was the uh, particle accelerator in CERN, and they're pretty sure they found the Higgs boson. So what is that? It's a 50 years to find one particle. That's the way science works. And they're very excited by this. They're like, yes. <laughs> Just like that. We got it. Right? And some Nobel Prizes will probably be handed out, and that'll be very fun. But it's certainly not revolutionary. The other thing that science does permanently um, is in, in, the, in the late 1990s, uh, separate teams were trying to measure the rate, the, the, how fast the universe is expanding. Right? And there are all these theories and all this. And we had a really good cosmological understanding of the universe. Rock solid. I mean, nobody wanted to see it change. And what they found out was it was wrong. Um, because these teams returned the information that said the universe is not just expanding, which we expected, very good, um, but it's accelerating, it's expanding faster and faster, which is bad because the model does not allow for that. <laughs> and so the cosmologists now, now that you have new data, first they said, we think you're wrong. And then they did some more, nah, it turns out it looks like it's pretty reliable. Damn. So now we've got to think again. And this is the other thing to understand about science. Is it's, it's an ongoing process. We want it to be done. Finish up your science now. <laughs> give us the answer. Give us the pill. Give us the switch. Give us the, the solution. And then we're ready to go. Another great example of this, but that's, see, it works both ways. It both um, creates speculation that you have to take decades to, to answer and often turns out to be wrong. And then sometimes it produces new things that messes up decades of work. Just erase all that. And we'll have to come up with some new, new ideas. So by the way, the response to that was, if you've heard of dark matter and dark energy, they said, well, it turns out that we're missing 90% of the universe. Which is, if you think about it, it's a big miss. Right? Well, so it's there, but we can't see it, so we'll call it dark, which I think is genius. Ah, it's great. I love when science does that, right? This invisible magic universe stuff. Uh, and so now they're busy looking for that, of course, because otherwise we really don't know what's going on. Um, but another example of this is something like diabetes. Now, type 1 diabetes is a killer, a horrible killer. Some people are, are, are born, born with an inability to process sugars and glucose and all this. Um, and so what would happen is you'd reach a certain age and you would just starve to death. Uh, and so this was, and so family, think about this. You have a perfectly healthy child, and then if, when it onset, you would just watch them start relatively quickly. You just kill them. They just, it was horrible, terrible, tragic disease. 
Um, and, and they finally found a cure for this, that, that we could add insulin. And they've been improving the way insulin is delivered. And so now people don't get diabetes. It's great. No, we have diabetes in epic proportions. How can that be true? How can we have a treatment for diabetes and yet people get it in epic proportions? One is a treatment and not a cure. And two, lots of people who would not get diabetes, millions and millions, sort of volunteer for it. <laughs> it's, 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 now, it's not all of the mechanisms of diabetes are not perfectly understood. But what is clearly understood is for most people, if you do not have it genetically, which almost nobody does, it's a relatively rare but still horrible disease, but treatable with insulin. Great. But then lifestyle. Millions and millions of people acquired a lifestyle that includes a diet uh, and a lack of exercise that combine to make you, your chance of getting diabetes go up astronomically, which is to say, you sort of volunteer for it. Um, so notice that see, science can't solve that. Because we can come up with a pill, in theory, that then cures diabetes. They're actually, of course, working on this. They have, they've made some progress on this. But it doesn't prevent us from getting some other disease that then science has to cure. We can cure pretty much probably 60 to 70% of the diabetes in the world by changing the way we eat and exercise. That's what nutritional science and health science tells us. So why don't we do that? We don't want to. People are perverse and wonderful and irrational in every way. And so we want the scientism, the magic pill which probably isn't coming anytime soon. Not do what science says, which is dramatically lower your chance of getting diabetes by having a certain kind of exercise regime and by eating a certain way. Science tells us that. We want nothing to do with that kind of science. Get rid of that. Scientism says, here's a pill. That's what we like. It's a revolution that solves our problem without us doing anything. Very unscientific perfectly scientism. And this influences our thinking, again, across the board. So much so, again, here's another example for you. So much do we actually deny science while embracing scientism. This is the weird mix of it. Scientism actually erases science. It hides it. As I got this, uh, the creationist super conference of 2014 is coming up. You may want to know about this. So these are the people who believe that the world was created about 6,000 years ago uh, by, a, by, a, by a deity. That's a, that's a great idea. Um, it just runs counter to virtually all biology, geology, astro uh, astronomy, cosmology. We have lots of reasons to think the world is not 6,000 years old. Uh, but this conference will be live internet broadcast. <laughs> No, I just love this notion. The tool of satellite communication, uh, um, fiber optics, which is an amazing fiber optic digital communication, uh, computer systems, cameras, LCD, I mean, in the entire panoply of modern scientific technological achievement, 
will be marshaled by these people <laughs> to tell everybody that science doesn't work. <laughs> that shit doesn't work. Don't believe it. It's pretty, this, is, this is scientism. You don't actually have to believe the science to use it. You can brought it. It's just, it's just mind-boggling. It's like, look, if you put your popcorn in the microwave and turn it on and it pops, creationism is wrong. I mean, it's really that simple. If, if creationism is right, then that microwave oven does not work. You can run the test. I mean, it's more or less a one-to-one -one correlation. But, but you don't. But see, this is, the, this is the power of scientism. And if you look at the people who are speaking at this conference, which I did, Many of them claim scientific credentials. Because if you're going to deny science, its breakthroughs, its methods, and its insights, people will only believe you if you're a credentialed scientist. I'm not making that up. That's how much we believe in scientism. If the scientists say it, it must be true even when they say things that, of course, abrogate the entire work of, you know, the scientific establishment for several hundred years. That's okay, because it's a scientist. And so we're in this bizarre world where we love to rate, measure, score. Don't get me started on education, it's terrifying. Uh, um, and, and assume all of the methods of scientific analysis in a world that we can't reproduce. Uh, a, a last notion here from, from uh, I think economics is probably one of the great ones to look at. Um, one of the big, the neoclassical school of economics, you may have heard of Chicago School is one of the famous ones. Uh, one of their fundamental assumptions is the rational actor, which is that human beings make rational financial decisions. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I suspect <laughs> that occasionally, every once in a while, human beings do not make rational financial decisions. In fact, I think the history of the world demonstrates with utter and complete clarity that if there's anything we're irrational about, it's money. By the way, the next lecture will be on money, uh, in which I will explore this topic in great detail. But we are not, never have been, nor will be, nor should we be. I, would, I think it would be a very sad world indeed where we'll people to be rational with their money. Uh, that would be no fun. Um, it just, it, it, but they have to assume that. By the way, they have to assume this. Because if you assume that in aggregate people do not make rational decisions, then you can't study them scientifically. It would be like assuming that atoms occasionally just turn into different atoms for no reason. This would make chemistry extraordinarily difficult. Now, some people say, oh, at the quantum level, there's all this weirdness. There is weirdness at the quantum level, and it's totally stable weirdness. <laughs> Particles do weird things with perfect consistency. That's fine. This doesn't create a problem for us at all. We're cool with that. As long as your weirdness is consistent, we're totally inconsistent with our weirdness. <laughs> we're wacky. We're chaotic. I mean, think about, I mean, I mean we all live through the sort of housing crisis um, breakdown. Uh, it, Time Magazine, amongst many others, had, you know, you cannot lose money in real estate. Real estate, the greatest investment of all time. The entire history of real estate is nothing but a series of booms and busts. I mean, it is the speculative bubble up and down. So this is just another in a long line of them. But we have totally forgotten this. 
again. <laughs> Which is what humans do, completely irrational, but this is exactly what humans do. We forget immediately. <gasps> Look, greed, yay, I can have some for me. Then fear, ah, sell it all, get rid of it, it's worth nothing. Foo, ha, foo, ha. <laughs> That's, that, you know, this is what we do. I mean, we have the, the, the booms and busts throughout history are very, very well documented. Um, you know, it's irrational. But we'll just, they, I guess there was a, a comic convention in New York and somebody has like a first edition Superman that's worth millions. What? <laughs> There's no rational explanation for the valuation of a comic book at millions of dollars, or a Jasper Johns for that matter, or, or a Van Gogh, or whatever, right? It, but there it is. It's completely human, right? There's no problem. I understand it on a human level. Rationally, no. And I don't believe anybody predicted this. In fact, I know no economist predicted this. Because if you had a theory that accurately predicted what people would suddenly find immensely valuable, you would be immensely wealthy. You would have, 30 years ago, run your equations and said, oh, look at this, comic books in the 2000s are gonna boom. I'm buying them all. You'd be a, like the comic book billionaire today. You'd be like, ha ha, I am a billionaire. And you could be interviewed about the stupid revolutions that science isn't creating for our society. But, but this does not happen because it's extraordinarily difficult. Um, to do this, to make these predictions. Why? Because economics is not a science. Indeed, one of our fam most famous economists, John Maynard Keynes, one of his first books, I believe it was his first book, was on probability. And he said, you cannot use statistical analysis for economic behavior because you can't predict economics. Because you couldn't predict the 9-11 attacks. He didn't use that example, obviously, but he used similar examples from his own day. Because you can't predict things like that, you just basically have no idea. But we know with absolute certainty, this is the thing, it is not speculative at all to say strange, unexpected, bizarre things will happen. <laughs> what they are, we don't know, and hence, economics not a science, but useful. And this is where I want to leave us. Now, what's happened with scientism is it's eclipsed all other forms of knowing. And this is where it damages us. This is where the problem lies. The knowledge of a wine connoisseur is valuable in the sense that they have tried many, many wines and in theory have created a sense of what they like. And if they can articulate that, then you can gain from that. This becomes useful information. And then you can go out and experiment yourself and using their information and ideas and your experiences develop perhaps a greater sense of the kind of wines you like, the qualities you might like to develop, and some wines you might like to try to narrow the field from all the thousands if not millions of varieties that are available. But this isn't scientific in any way. But it's valuable, it's useful, and indeed for human beings getting through the world much more valuable than any sort of pseudo-scientific thing we could do. And again, it's the same for books and novels and movies we might want to see, people we might want to meet. Right? We have all these uh, electronic dating sites.
that in theory are supposed to match people that fill out your, your thing and then we'll have all these algorithms that will match people and then, no, it turns out to be a bunch of nonsense. People, you know, they've studied this and they say, look, people just use it as a pre-screening device. And then they communicate with the people and they choose and it turns out that the, the matching algorithms are total crap. <laughs> Which is not surprising, right? We, we know this. I mean, that, that sometimes people, you think, oh, I'm really going to like this person. And you turn out, yeah, I don't like this person. I don't know why exactly. Or some people, you think, ah, oh, that person, I just, oh, I really like them. I find them attractive for God knows what reason. But it probably wasn't predicted by an algorithm. Right? And that, but again, choosing who we spend our lives with is an immensely important part of the human experience. Think of how expensive emotionally and financially divorce is. And look at how prevalent it is. An unbelievably high, if you want to call it a tax or, or cost, on our inability to make those kinds of judgments. But we still have to try. You don't know, right? You just, you, know, you don't know. And think about this. If, if you're married, you might say, oh, I'm happily married, but maybe I would be happier with somebody else. <laughs> right? Maybe. But, but notice... There's no way of knowing. The only way to know would be to get a divorce and then to go with the other person. Well, that's two people. Well, that only leaves, if you're dating, you know, opposite sex or even same sex, I guess, about three billion people. <laughs> there's no way to know. There's no scientific way to know because you, you, there's only one of you. And even if you get married relatively rapid, right? Um, you're not going to cover any significant, you're not going to get a statistical, statistically significant sample. Try as you might. Also, the only way you can know whether being married for a long time is worth the investment is to be married for a long time. And so while you might say, well, I'm pulling the plug on this experiment, I'm going to try this one. Well, now you just washed that one out. That experiment was not ever finished. This often happens. Stop running it. We don't know how it turned out. See, but that this is what life is very much more like. And, it, and just because things can't be quantified, just because they can't be replicated and duplicated and reproduced in many labs, all of which are necessary for science, by the way, you have to be able to replicate it and duplicate it, it doesn't mean you can't think about it in meaningful ways. In fact, again, if you go back to preceding 1900, almost no one, unless you're in a chemistry lab, used this kind of scientific overlay to try and figure out things. Now, this slows you down if you're trying to do chemistry. If you're using analogies from classical Greek literature to work on chemistry, ah, you're in trouble. If you're using analogies from classical Greek literature to think about relationships, ooh, probably doing pretty well, or at least potentially well. Or at least as good as anything else. <laughs> right? And this is, you know, but this, this is where you end up. And so again, this is not a, a, it's not an attack on science. It is an attack on the misapplication of science. Because we expect it to solve problems or give solutions or provide answers that are totally outside of its purview. People hate politics. 
One reason they didn't hate politics is because it's a grubby power fest. This is, but this is, politics has always been this way. What the hell are politicians supposed to do but go in there and slog it out for preferential treatment? I mean, this is, there is no other way, particularly in a democracy. There is another way, by the way, Socrates, uh, Plato uh, uh, elaborates on this in the Republic, in which case you just have a totalitarian dictatorship of the most vicious sort, right? You're like, well, that gets rid of all those grubby people with power. Yeah, it does, but I'm not sure that's a very positive response. You know, and people say, well, why can't scientists, you know, why can't the science say of global warming be embraced by our political leaders? They don't care about the science. Forget the science. They just do not care on either party. Zero interest in science. But they look at the politics of it and they go, right, let's put a big old tax on gasoline. That's not going to win any votes. Right? This is, a, this is not a vote winner, ladies and gentlemen. Maybe someday it will be. Right now, if you're in Georgia and you're running for political office and you say, I'm going to put a dollar gallon tax on your gasoline, you are not being elected. <laughs> Congratulations. Right? And, and, and these kinds of considerations are not scientific. Indeed, there is a question whether or not it, global warming would be a great example. If global warming's worst nightmare scenarios come true, um, our political system may not be able to respond to the demands of a changing natural environment, in which case sort of our civilization explodes, which would be kind of cool. Um, <laughs> would be interesting, right? Change. Uh, there would be your change from science. Uh, but, but that is not an indictment of science. It's just an indictment of our political system. But all political systems fail. This is if the history of the world shows that your political system might last five years, 50 years, 500 years. 500 years if you're really, really lucky. That's a good long run in history. But something is going to cause it to fail. But it, it, it's not going to be a lack of response to science, probably. It's just an inability to deal with the problems because of the trade-offs that have to be made. It's all the ugly hedging and lies and distortions that we don't like. We want the truth. We want a number. But most of the world, again, this is back to where I started from, most of our world is more like that bridge question. If you can think about this, really keep it in your mind. How to build a bridge? Science. Yes, great, wonderful. We build better bridges than anybody ever has in history. Not more beautiful, by the way, just better for utility. We build hideously ugly bridges, inexplicably, but we do. Uh, but we could build beautiful ones, but we don't care. So it's an indictment of us. But where to build a bridge? Who should pay for it? All those other questions, they're not subject to scientific solutions. They're the grubby questions we have to ask every day. Who should I marry? Should I stay married to them? What kind of job should I get? Are they paying me enough? What should I waste my money on that I've earned? <coughs> right? Should I buy the third best novel? Is <laughs> Think about it. If Angels and Demons is only 10% less good than Brothers Karamazov, but it's half as expensive, <laughs> Isn't that like the best deal ever? <laughs> I get 90% as good of a novel for half the cost. <laughs> right? That's your 88. Your wine bottle is $10, but brought an 88. Right? Think of how much better a deal that is than the $30 bottle that got an 89. <laughs> you see how just stupid and preposterous it is? 
By the way, if Angels and Demons is free, it's not worth it. Uh, and, if, and, if, and if Brothers Karamazov costs $100, it's more than worth it. See? But, but that, those are the sort of, of experiences. That's where we live. We do not live in the world of science, as wonderful, as an amazing and beautiful human achievement as the sciences are. And the scientific method is truly a revolution in the humanity's capacity to understand the world. But the misapplication of that method, which we do almost without can't help ourselves, damages our ability to respond to and understand the world. And really, for me, that's the problem with scientism. Thank you very much. Thank you.